0: Hello and Talk welcome Radio. back <clears throat> Welcome back to a Better World. This is your host, Mitchell J. Rabin. First a little Mozart. J. Rabin. I'm very glad you're joining us again this evening. Uh, Sorry for the little bit of delay at the beginning. We had a little technical glitch, which we have gotten over and through. But it's interesting because today's show is about global glitches, about what could happen in the event of a solar storm. And what you just experienced here on A Better World is An absolute micro-nano-sized issue in comparison to what it could be that we face based on natural cycles, actually. For once, it's just natural cycles, not anthropogenic. But today, we have invited back to join us Matthew Stein, MIT-trained mechanical engineer, environmentalist, best-selling author, And green builder, among other things, actually, he is a true Renaissance man, an inspiring speaker and visionary thinker. He is dedicated to helping people wake up and to untie, unite, I'm sorry, the shift of our collective course from Collapse to Global Renaissance. So when I say Renaissance man, I really mean it. This is the kind of thinking that uh, Matthew, myself, and many others are inviting the mainstream people rank and file, so-called ordinary, but there's nothing ordinary about ordinary. We're all actually extraordinary and it's time for us to embrace that extraordinary nature of ours based on the gift of our cerebral cortex, our prefrontal cortex, our enormous heart. We have brains all over the place, neuroreceptor sites, and based on what is happening naturally, and is what is going on anthropogenically. It is truly the time for wake-up and history. Tradition shows us. Prophecy shows us from traditions east and west, all pointing to this very specific time. And that's what we'll be speaking about tonight. We'll be looking at solar storms uh, and other, you know, climate-related events that could beseech us, that could befall us, and set us on another course unless we are prepared. So this is one of Matthew Stein's specialties of what it means to be prepared. And from there, as the further extension of being prepared, we want to use this real-world situation, this natural in some way, solar systemic situation as uh, you could say, an excuse for building community, building greater love, compassion, understanding, virtue, patience, and oxytocin among we humans of this particular species because right now we are, as a species, extremely fractured and uh, playing some roles that are just uh, way lower than our true human potential. So with that said, I want to invite and welcome Matthew Stein back onto A Better World Radio. He's been on before and will no doubt be on again. The conversation is ongoing, and the need for input into our audience is great. So Matthew, welcome back to A Better World. A pleasure to have you. Mitch, thank you so much for
1: having me back on your show. Looking forward to our, today's conversation.
0: Good. I'm so glad. You know, you've had uh, conversations with some of the top people on uh, coast-to-coast and radio and television shows across the country, Matt, and so it's really a pleasure, privilege, and honor to have you on A Better World again to talk with our audience, which is some kind of interesting amalgam of the others that you have spoken to before. So, please know your words are welcome the uh, mind is open here and highly intelligent, and people are just receptive to hearing about what is going on, of course, both on the horizontal plane of Earth as well as how our spaceship as Buckminster Fuller properly called it, is interacting with our larger solar systemic and galactic forces. So from that point of view, why don't we begin today's conversation then, Matt, with uh, the solar storm cycles and what's going on today? Okay, well please, I open it up. There
1: is an 11-year cycle on the sun where it's supposed to flip its poles roughly every 11 years, and so you, within the cycle, you tend to have a solar maximum and a solar minimum, but people think of cycles, and they think of, you know, summer, winter, spring, and fall, and these solar cycles are not nearly as predictable as summer, winter, spring, and fall. I mean, mm-hmm. so you, you, essentially, when the solar goes through a what's called a solar maximum, it's more likely that we have something called solar storms happening in the maximums than in the minimums, but they can happen any time. And, and what a solar storm is, is is when the sun kind of burps, it's like a big, giant mass of plasma, something like, you know, a million hydrogen bombs worth of stuff going goes out from the sun at very high speeds into space. These are going out into space at like a thousand times faster than our rockets fly. So they, it it, 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 it's like a big giant burp, and it's a bunch of sun stuff, uh, charged plasma that goes flying off at many, many thousands of miles per hour, actually per second, out into space, and it can hit the Earth. On occasion, they hit the Earth. Now, when they do hit the Earth, you see something called northern lights and southern lights, and occasionally, you know, every once every year or two, we talk about how there was great northern lights and airplane flights were rerouted over the north and south pole and communications were minorly disrupted and most of us live far enough um, close enough to the equator's far enough away from the poles that we don't see these northern lights and and you kind of think oh well that was kind of cool you see some really great pictures well every now and then you get an extreme solar event and like we had in 1921 and we had in 1859 and in those cases the the sky was being the Carrington event That's correct. We had the great great geomagnetic storm of 1921 and the Carrington event, which is kind of like the granddaddy solar storm of modern history, happened in 1859. And when those happened, uh, the sky lit up from the North Pole to Cuba and Hawaii and Puerto Rico and from the South Pole as far as American Samoa. So the entire planet was lit up at night except for a very narrow sliver of the planet around the equator and you know think about like a when you put a horseshoe magnet as a kid into a sandbox and you got iron filings sticking to the magnet then they stuck around mm-hmm. the north and south pole and they didn't really stick around the center the center is like neutral and so when these charged particles go flying into the earth's magnetic field they interact and you get a you get an electromagnetic interaction effect happening much stronger towards the poles and much weaker towards the equator and that's why most of the time we don't we're, we don't you know unless you're living in Canada or British Columbia or northern Europe you just don't see the northern lights very often. I grew up in Vermont and I, I remember seeing them you know a couple of times when I was a kid and that and we live 50 miles from the Canadian border. So most people in America don't see them much. But imagine now that people in Hawaii are seeing the night sky lit up with northern lights, and people in you know, Puerto Rico and Cuba are seeing the night sky lit up. I mean, that's what we're looking at then. So these yeah. things, these big solar events, the last time it happened was before we had a big interconnected grid. And so it was kind of no big deal. I mean, this uh, a railroad station burned down in some town north of New York City, a little ways north of New York City, burned down. And in the 1800s, a bunch of telegraph stations burned down, and people could send disconnect their telegraph, which was like someone called it the Victorian Internet. I kind of like that. So the Victorian <laughs> Internet was down for a couple, for for like a week in uh, 1859, and it was down for a couple of days in 1921. But, you know, now we have computers. We have a massive interconnected grid. We have, you you see these high-tension lines that crisscross our nation, where where, that's the power lines where they're on giant towers, and there's like a mile between towers. and, And those lines are an Achilles heel that did not, just plain did not exist back in 1921. So what those mean today is these are we have hundred thousand miles of extra high voltage power lines crisscrossing the United States. At the ends of each of these lines is a giant transformer that steps our power up to roughly three hundred and fifty thousand to a million volts to go travel long distances at very high efficiencies. And then on the other end it steps down to you know, voltages that can be used by the smaller transformers that we see in our neighborhoods and on our telephone poles, and mm-hmm. those giant lines and giant transformers are a huge Achilles' heel because they act as a, a massive antenna to capture electromagnetic energy from solar storms. It's not what they're designed to do, but they do it by you know they just happen by function to it. of what they are. Right. By function, right, of, by function of the way, what they are, they're they're a giant antenna. And these transformers on each end, these things are massive. They are like a hundred tons each. They cost tens of millions of dollars each. There's a year long waiting list to rush it for a rush order you get one in a year. And they're custom made mm. and custom designed and and custom built per delivery and per order for per site. And and it's actually the standard delivery in these now is running about three years. And the problem is that our grid is really, really dependent on them now. I mean, these didn't exist before the 1960s. They they hadn't even been
0: invented yet. And these, Matt, if I'm not mistaken, are all built these days, not in the United States any longer, but exclusively in China.
1: Well, no, they're they're built in about a dozen countries, but uh, the United States is not one of them. So they're built in France and Germany and Brazil and Korea, uh, South Korea and China, those are probably the main ones that build them. China, China, India, South Korea, and Brazil probably building the most now, with, with Germany and France building some. And mm-hmm. so the problem is that in the event of a big geomagnetic storm, you know the, the government got very worried about the vulnerability of our grid, uh, and they had a, a bipartisan commission called the EMP Commission, uh, that was to study the vulnerability Which of our grid. Which both...
0: Electromagnetic Pulse Commission.
1: Right. And it was to study the vulnerability of the grid both due to a terrorist act using a uh, nuclear device blown off like five to a hundred miles above the surface of the Earth, specifically designed to cripple the grid and cripple electronics, but also there's what's called like a natural EMP, which is the solar sun, the sun doing it, a big massive solar storm. So they looked at this problem and they said, yes, this is a very genuine real problem. Um, In 1989, we had a geomagnetic storm roughly one-tenth as strong as the 1921 storm, which was roughly 50% weaker than the 1859 Carrington event. And in that storm, uh, there were 15 simultaneous failures in the Quebec grid, and one of which was a massive transformer blowing out and the entire grid went down for the entire province of Quebec for uh, several hours to a couple of days depending on where you were and one of these in at at a the Salem nuclear power plant in the east coast one of these transformers blew and one blew in the UK so that was 3 that blew in the 1989 event and that was roughly 10% as strong as the 18 18- as a nineteen twenty one super storm, which was you know fifty percent weaker than than the Carrington event, so Carrington, so yeah. they got pretty worried and they looked at this and they said, "Well, you know let's study this problem and they hired a company called Meditech corporation that that was um, ad, and that had advanced tools for evaluating the grid for electromagnetic issues, and they determined that given the 1921 size storm they based it on that because in looking at ice core samplings it, it turns out that there's about a 1 in 8 chance every decade for having a 1921 size storm and the carrington event they so so that's an event that happens every roughly every generation you know every yes. 75 to 100 years you know couple of generations of people and the last one happened 90 years ago and the and the one before that the current event was only 60 years before that so so there was in recent history there was 260 years apart and then 290 years apart and uh, it's been 90 since the last one and and so looking at ice core samplings they're saying it's it's a 1 in 8 chance every decade now if you know i asked you this before but I'll ask you it again if someone told you don't worry about getting on that airplane there's only a one-in-eight chance it's going to crash. What do you think you'd do? Do you think you'd get on that airplane? No, I'd explore taking a train. <laughs> That's right. If, if airplanes were falling out of the sky one-in-eight, one in eight, then I don't think anyone, you, you, no one would ride on airplanes. But here they're True. basically saying that due to a totally natural reoccurring occurrence from the sun, from natural solar cycles, that we have a one-in-eight chance... For our civilization crashing horribly due to a grid grid crash every decade, you know, one out of every one out of eight decades, uh, one of these big storms is likely is is going to hit statistically. It's which harrowing. You might have, it's really harrowing. You
0: might,
1: yeah, you might have two storms that are two decades apart, and you might have two storms that are twenty decades apart. But the average is one in eight, and it's been nine decades since the last one.
0: So yeah. we're essentially due. And the probability, the prob- Matt, really looks like we are very much due. <clears throat> yes, well, we are
1: due. We are due, but you yep. know, it's a crap shot. Like <clears throat> it, it could be another ten decades before it happens. But chances are, we're due. We're overdue, and mm-hmm. chances are, it's going to be sooner rather than later. Now, here's the consequence. So, so Meditech looked at this. You know, the government said, "Look, this is a a really big problem. This is a like." You know, collapse of the stock market, collapse of the United States, uh, starvation of much of most of the population of the country. You know, potential multiple nuclear meltdowns. I mean, you're looking at a list of of options on the on the if one of these big storms hit before we've actually made any changes and protected ourselves from them. That is certainly the end of the world as we know it. And at the worst level. Uh, potentially uh, an extinction event if we have you know hundreds of nuclear power plants that eventually melt
0: down Very because true. so when because did we can't when did Meditec when did Meditech get hired to take a look at the situation? I it's think receptive. that
1: Meditech was hired in the in around 2007 or 8, and I think that the study was about 2010. And I have all them all printed out, but they're not in front of me right now, so I can't say yes. that definitively. But
0: I've spoken but the point is the that the, in nineteen eighty nine. To... In nineteen eighty nine was that more severe event. And so that means look at all the time, almost twenty years, approx maybe between twelve and twenty years before the government actually got into action to review the 1989 occurrence.
1: Yeah, I mean, it was reviewed, but it was reviewed by engineers and by people. And and then in 2003, there was a an event that was longer in duration, but lower in intensity than the 1989 event. And that storm, for some reason, I'm not sure that it's fully understood yet, but for some reason... It really caused havoc in the South African grid. And eventually, 14 of their transformers, none of them failed instantly, but there was overheating and burning of insulation on the coils. And so within a month or so, something like 14 of their transformers blew. And the only way the country could function was they had to do rolling blackouts for an entire year. Now, imagine trying to work each day. And for three days out of your work week, you'd have six hours of your work day with absolutely no power, and every single backup generator got scarfed up in the first you know few hours after this event started and so they're back ordered for months to get a generator in, and you know you go to work and any random day of the week, you know you got no lights, you got no heat, you got no air conditioners, and you got no elevators, you got no freezers working refrigerators you know are 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 out all of that for you know yes. six hours of the day, three days of the week. I mean that's the whole way. Very the serious very serious disruption and this was exactly. A baby storm compared to the nineteen twenty one storm, which was much shorter in duration and weaker in intensity than the eighteen fifty nine one. Nineteen twenty one storm went on for two days. In eighteen fifty nine the the Carrington event there was a one two punch of coronal mass ejections, those are those burps from the sun, and they had a direct hit on the planet. So first one hit, it lit up the sky really, really amazingly for two days and nights all around the planet. And then just as, geomagnetically speaking, things were kind of starting to calm down on the planet, a second CME had a direct hit on the planet. And it spun it up. So, So for an entire week, the light with, you know, the nights were lit up all over over 90% of the planet for an entire week. The lights, then there was like no night. People would wake up in the middle of the night hiking in, hikers in uh, Colorado, and they thought daybreak was happening at 3 in the morning. And, you know, there was steamships from around the world in the South Pacific. They were talking about how the light. The nights were blood red and orange and gold streaks and <laughs> shimmering curtains of light. I mean, it was that way around most ninety percent of the planet for an entire week. And if that were, and then it was just kind of a a really cool thing and amazing, and people were you know had a, had an incredible light show. But life went on pretty normal. Now though, we have this massive interconnected grid that's going to collapse. Metatech showed that something like three hundred and seventy. Of these massive transformers in the United States alone would blow. Now, the entire world capacity is about a hundred a year when it's working right. You know, when when the world's not down, and um, maybe they could the, rush. The mass- they could really ramp up the. The maximum is a hundred a year. What? A hundred to make to make these transformers to rebuild
0: to oh, build to, new transformers to replace them. them.
1: Yeah. And and we're looking at, so I asked John Kappenman, he was the author of the Meditech study, and I asked him, well, what do you think in the whole world? And he said, well, I didn't study the world. And I said, what do you think, maybe 2,000? He said, yeah, that's a pretty good guess. So 2,000 transformers blown in the world, reasonable good guess, that would equal 20 years of manufacturing capacity at the world's current capacity of making these massive transformers. And that's assuming that the world is yes. is still able to function and work, But most of the countries that make this would be just as crippled as the United States. So you're looking at a long-term grid-down situation, and you're looking at, you know, no functioning of Wall Street, no functioning of the military, no functioning of the government. You're looking at no oil refining going on. You're looking at when nuclear power plants, uh, when the grid goes down, a nuclear power plant must be, Go into automatic shutdown mode and disconnect itself from the grid and sh- start shutting itself down. And it's not like flipping a switch on a nuclear power plant. Um, apparently, according to Arnie Gunderson, who's a nuclear industry expert, nine months after Fukushima happened, um, if they lost cooling pumps to the power to the uh, shutdown react to a shutdown reactor, it would still melt down in something like 35 hours. You know mm-hmm. in, in other words, it melted down in fifteen minutes with, with loss of cooling pumps when the tsunami wiped out the cooling pumps. On on right out you know, twenty minutes after the earthquake. See the earthquake hit the four functioning the four reactors that were active at the time of the earthquake in Fukushima all went into emergency shutdown mode and they, and they all their backup generators and their backup pumps kicked in to keep water flowing through the reactors and keep them cooled. Because mm-hmm. um you've got, you know, reactors making a huge amount of heat, and you have to put that heat somewhere, and normally, it generates tons and tons of steam that runs steam turbines that generates power that keeps that gets fed to the grid, but when the grid goes down, you got to take that heat somewhere, or it's going to burn itself up, and so, you send these huge cooling pumps with water that just gets thrown out into fields or into cooling towers to keep them cooled on an emergency basis, until the grid comes up again, you can restart them, and... Twenty minutes later, the tsunami came along, and it wiped out four of the five, uh, five of the six banks of backup generators and pumps were wiped out because they were on the ocean side. And only one of the six banks of generators and pumps was on the mountain side of the, you know, on the far side from the ocean and and didn't get wiped out. And that one saved reactor number six, and then they were able to... um, shunt some power from number six to number five, so you only had like a partial meltdown in number five. But the other two reactors that were going at the same time had a full meltdown within 15 minutes when they lost water. So what happens in a solar storm or an EMP when the grid's down long term is that each of our 104 nuclear power plants in the United States has only limited backup fuel on hand to keep those... Turbines, those those uh, water pumps going, and the water circulating cool. and cooling. Yeah. Right, and so if they run out of power, then you get Fukushima-style meltdowns. And normally, yes. you know, the, the NRC says you got to keep a week's worth of backup fuel on hand to keep these things going. But uh, that's you know, nothing. In the, in, a week is plenty when
0: everything in the world is working well.
1: But imagine well, a war situation in of dynamic right.
0: situation but in light a of storm, this kind of uh potential storm and outage, it's nothing. <laughs> you know. That's right. They're they're talking
1: the EMP commission said that in the minimum it's going to be months and most likely years before we really get things up and rolling again after an extreme solar event or an or an EMP type of storm. And they're they're talking realistically um, pretty crippled grid for four to ten years, you know. After after an event like this, and uh, well, you know, which is a really have, long time.
0: This is all. This Matt is all on the side of the mechanical, but we haven't factored in the social, the human, the subjective aspect of what is the experience of being without electricity. Day in, day out. What happens to refrigeration? What happens to toilet flushing? What happens right. to people on the street? What happens to food production? What happens to water availability? These are the crushing of right. characteristics of life in our urban areas and rural everywhere. Right. And I want to bring this to Suddenly a head, it's so third to world America. Where does exactly. the city of ten
1: million people pee and poo? and and how and right. there are ten million people gonna be drinking out of the duck ponds and and the you know hudson river and and the duck ponds in central park I mean that's where exactly. and, and where are they gonna to go to the bathroom and cholera and typhoid <laughs> and all of those nasty things that we associate with third world places and certainly not in america are will be you know at your back door and so and so very rapidly the population is... will
0: will be hungry. will degenerate. Thirsty, suffering, and and disease will ravage. So what we would have is one level or another of chaos and anarchy, government, structures, hierarchy, enforcement of any sort is sort of, you know, is lost. Right. So the good news is that there's a
1: technology been developed to protect these massive transformers from meltdown in the event of both an EMP, either an EMP or a solar storm. The bad news is that like studying the levees around New Orleans that engineers said were, for for five Mm -hmm. decades, the engineers had warned the levees were inadequate and would fail when the next big hurricane, similar to the, you know, I think it was 1912 Galveston hurricane hit, that... uh, when the next category three or stronger hurricane hit, the levees would fail. So for 50 years, what they studied in it and talked about it. Well, what happened it in was, Galveston in 1912. A huge storm came in. And it was, you know, pre. It was in the days where there was no space satellites, you know, and there was no airplanes flying around to, to give warning. And I think something like 12,000. The city got wiped out. And like 12,000 people died. You know, the city's like moved to a different place now from where it was then and and so they knew that storms of that magnitude could hit and it wasn't a question of if it'll hit again it's just a question of when you know and nobody could just like predicting a solar storm nobody could accurately predict exactly. when
0: hurricanes come So you Katrina know so this is the point we have the point one of the points <clears throat> is that this is a history uh of ours here in the United States and of course there's a global equivalent Uh, that very few people have any clue about, it's not in the history books to speak of, Um, and so we have to discover and rely on people like yourself to bring this to the foreground for people to be cognizant of the real sober reality of what cycles solar, etc., and geological cycles can how they can affect our daily lives that are so creature comfort-based. The other aspect is that there are solutions in hand, technological solutions, which political processes and machinations keep from being implemented, because it's more important to spend, you know, 60 cents of every uh, tax dollar on building up a Um, a war machine than to actually protect our own here at home with proper infrastructure protection. Now, I I want to come back around. I want to come back around to uh, an article that you mentioned in a prior conversation and uh, your email to me uh, from NASA Science News, which I would like you to discuss, having to do with the solar superstorm of July 2012, which shows us how close we were to what would have been how one week um, different uh, right. we would have had a global collapse. Could you talk to us about what that was? Right. See, the, the, when the sun burps,
1: you know, it's, it's coronal mass ejections fly in random directions. And, and there's a huge, you know, our, our Earth is a tiny little dot in space. And so most of the time these mass ejections go off in different directions far away from the Earth. But in July um, 23rd of 2012, a giant CME came out headed very close to the Earth. And it actually went right through our orbital path. But it went through the orbital path, and it it went right through a space that the Earth had been in one week earlier. And this CME was... Was larger even than the Carrington event. CME. Carrington, oh my! And so this is a CME that would have been a game over event had the Earth been one week had it happened one week earlier. In 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 other words, if it had gone the exact same place it went, but one week earlier, that's where the Earth had been one week ago, one week before.
0: And it would have been a game-over
1: event. So, so this is something that, that we narrowly
0: miss. That's how I mean, real it is, what you're putting on our table here. That's how real it is. And thankfully, the moon and the stars and the timing of things. But it's interesting, because the Mayan calendar, there is debate about it. But the Mayan calendar, of course, suggests, as do other prophetic traditions, that the year of 2012 was going to be rather catastrophic in many different ways, and no one really quite knew how to interpret the data, whether it was going to be um, horrific or glorious, and we could say that it's a little of each, but this is interesting, this particular, because this suggests that perhaps what the Mayan calendar was pointing to on possibly other uh, prophetic traditions as well, was an event sort of like this. And interestingly, it looks like it was a week off, thankfully. Well, thankfully... <laughs> Any comments about off. that? Well, I you know, I, people often ask me
1: if I was really worried about 2012. And I told them I was much more worried about it than I was about 2000. I mean, Y2K... That was just a simple solution, you know, a string of bits in a computer. It's like, nah, there's too much money at stake, and this is too easy to fix. They're just going to fix this problem. It was a non-problem. I mean, it needed to be fixed, but it was a non-problem. It was an easy fix. 2012, in my mind, I didn't feel like it was the end of the world. What I felt like it was, and I I still agree with that looking back at it, was I felt like 2012 was... The sign was 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 not a distinct point, but it was a place on on the big calendar where you could put a mark and say, from this point on, things will be degrading to the point where it will be much harder to deny on our planet. It's going to be much harder to deny that we're on a collision course with collapse. That if we keep, yes. you know. There's a whole bunch of people it's been attributed to, but I like to attribute it to Einstein that, you know, the famous quote that insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different yeah. result. And so right. I think what we're doing is we have these, I've identified in one article called the, the Perfect Storm Six Trends Converging on Collapse, that we have these major trends that human people are, you know, causing on the planet that are all headed, Collapse. If you graph a graph in high school and it's headed steeply down, unless you do something radically different to change the outcome, it's going to eventually hit the bottom. You know, so we're collapsing the oceans, we're deforesting the planet, we're you know changing the content of the atmosphere that's affecting our weather patterns. We're, and, we're again, destroying we're the plankton and, the coral ocean reefs. and overfishing.
0: Yep. Right.
1: So, so we are basically our own worst enemy because we've been True. so. We've been so wonderful at multiplying and being fruitful and multiplying in the planet, and we've been so wonderful at developing our technology that our, we're impacting the planet in such a way now that if we keep doing it the same way we're doing it and continue to accelerate our impact as we've done, then the guaranteed result is we 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 soil the nest, we burn the house down, and and most of us go away. And the way we the way our world works will collapse. Now. The good news is that we are sentient beings with big brains, and we can change. You know, how many of us, how many cannibals do you know? How many how many slave owners do you know? You know, um, there are still places in the world where women have no rights, but most of those are gone away. So these are all things that were common in the past that, uh, you know, slavery and cannibalism and women's having no rights, women's being chattel of men, those were quite common in the past, and they're much less common nowadays. So we can change as a species, and sometimes we change when we want to change, and more often we change when we have to change. And unfortunately, to change after the class is a lot of good. Yeah. Right.
0: But, but you know, changing
1: after the collapse is kind of like too late. Like, oh, well, well, let's change now that 90% of us have died and the exactly. technology's gone and everything's gone. Yeah, of course you're going to have to change then. Uh, I'm not going to personally... take you
0: up on the uh, point uh, that you made, Matt, about uh, slavery or the rights of women, for that matter, or even cannibalism. I'm going to take a pass on that because I could make the point that actually all of those exist – rather intact, just slightly more subtle, based on the 1%, 99% divide, and others. <laughs> but, <laughs> I, yeah, I guess, I guess you could, but... Um, you understand, but nonetheless, but have your, point is, uh, your point remains good, because there is I'm not saying they've been, been eliminated totally. Yeah. No, no, no. There is mutability. There is neuroplasticity. There is a big brain. There is a prefrontal cortex. There is a heart and a heart chakra. There are subtle energy bodies. There are levels of intelligence that are probably streaming in from any number of different sources about which we are not consciously aware. Let's just suppose that for a minute. Um, Even though it might be slow to arrive, we could suggest that it is happening and that Uh, The current structures and paradigm are breathing their last gasps as they fall away, and we replace our current paradigm with a renewable one that has heart and love, compassion, virtue, and patience. Um, as you know, it's handmaidens. You know, there's actually a lot of evidence about that, which supports what you're saying. Well, I hope they're breathing is, their last oh.
1: gas, but I'm not so sure that they are. But so, so from for, so quickly before I forget totally. You know, one of the yes. things back in 1997, I would had a 20-year practice of prayer and meditation, and I I simply asked for guidance and inspiration, and got a bomb dropped in my lap and. What I wish – what uh, instantaneously yeah. in this call of the vision, I received a pictorial storyboard outline for a massive book to help people live more sustainably, more self-reliantly, and plan for and deal with varying levels of things falling apart in our world. Everything from minor meltdowns, you know, grids down for a week, to like, you know what, hit the fan, and nothing's working, and you're on your own. and And that became my book, When Technology Fails, which helps people – plan you know have a realistic view of what's going on in our world and plan their lives accordingly and and you know i don't want everyone to run around like chicken little the sky's falling the sky's falling but yet on the other hand you don't want to be an ostrich with your head in the sand and you don't want to say don't worry they will take care of it for me and everything is going to be okay because there's smart people in the world and they would never let anything bad happen well you know, the Nazi Holocaust happened. Rwanda happened. Um, you know, lots Rome fell. I mean, lots <laughs> of stuff right. is happening in our world, and if you have your eyes open and look around you, you can see that things are accelerating in a direction that's not very positive looking. And
0: that's that, correct.
1: You know that you need to you need to open your eyes, and you need to. Look around and say, "Well, really take stock. Really take yeah, stock. Yeah, how how can I live my life more resiliently? How can I plan for and deal with and cope with things? Hopefully, not as bad as the worst case, which would be extremely difficult to cope with. But how can I? How can I both live on you know on a ma- micro level? What can I do for myself and my family and my friends? And on a macro level, what can I do to help shift our course from collapse to sustainability? Can I? Can I?" Be part of the awakening that's going to hopefully prevent the giant train wreck. And it's like right now, it's like we're we're headed down the tracks at 100 miles an hour, and the end of the tracks are there, and there's a big giant stone wall that we're going to run into at the track end. And instead of putting the brakes on, we're just kind of pushing down and say, well, let's just go a little faster, and maybe that'll make things a little better. And um, so, so you know, on the on the mass on the micro level, how can I prepare to jump off the train? And on the macro level, is there a way with it that we can wake enough people up that we can uh, persuade the conductor and make changes so we can slow this train down and either avoid the crash or make the crash not be so bad and so devastating?
0: Exactly, exactly. And that's where the other level of our dialogue today really segues into. Let's let everyone know that you are listening to A Better World with Mitchell J. Rabin. We're on every Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. And today's show is talking with Matthew Stein, MIT-trained mechanical engineer, best-selling author, popular speaker about subjects as this, this revelation that Matthew had, which inspired his book when technology fails, and the kind of preparation we can do, and it's not fear-based. This is an important point. It's not a fear-based preparation. It's an intelligence-based preparation that anybody would do. It's like having a first aid kit in your, in your closet, in your medicine cabinet, for times when your children scrape their knee, hurt themselves, need help, or the parents, and can take proper action. That's what Matthew's work is about, and that's why I wanted to have him on again today to talk about that. And, Matt, if we could right now, actually, I want to also remind you that if you don't yet get our newsletter, go to abetterworld.tv, where we announce all three of our shows every week, Monday night TV show here in Manhattan in New York City, Tuesday afternoon on Progressive Radio Network, Gary Null, where we look at different films, progressive documentaries typically, showing where we are, diagnosis, and then solutions to where we can go, very much like we're talking about here today on A Better World with Matthew Stein. Matthew, one of the roles that you play, one of your careers and livelihoods is as a green builder, and you used a very wonderful phrase with me earlier of building resilience, and I think that's so important, a concept. Could you speak about, in the light of preparation, for what might happen, and it's good to be prepared, what would you recommend people do in light of preparation and the notion of self sufficiency
1: well it's a it's a big, broad topic, and how
0: much time do we have so we have about twenty twenty minutes, okay, okay, so
1: in the light of you know resilience, you think about resilience in terms of personal resilience, you know can I do I have some food stored? Do I know skills and talents like self healing? Do I have a bag of tricks uh a bag of alternative healing tools so that if if uh medicines are either a not available or b simply not working because of some super bug that's going around? Do I have some alternates in my bag of tricks? Do I have maybe some antibiotics in case they do work um, Do I have the ability if there's no power and say, you know, 37% of the population in the United States lives within 50 miles of a nuclear power plant. So do I have the ability that if there's a long-term grid-down situation and I live not too far from a nuclear power plant, do I have the ability to get myself out of the downwind zone? Do I have the ability to do that when there's no gasoline? You know, can I get me and my family on bicycles or, you know? There, there's There's multiple scenarios, multiple things to think about. There's a wonderful book called the Transition, Ta- you know, Transition Town Handbook, and the Transition yes. Town movement, and the Transition the Town model. yeah is a, is a model that's based on saying, look, the the world's ability to to process and and mine for oil is is peaking. You know, you know the the stuff is not unlimited supply in the ground, and We've extended the peak of world oil production by a few years with fracking, but fracking is a very short lived band aid It's basically very energy and environmentally detrimental and it and they've already found that most of the fracked sweet spots have been hit already. And they're predicting a decline in fracked oil starting in a, you know, another couple of years from now. That it'll start going back. So we would have, without fracking, we would have peaked in world oil production a few, year, a couple of years ago, probably 2012. But with fracking, it'll probably, we're probably a couple of years away from peaking in world oil production. Maybe, maybe five or ten. It kind of depends on world economy. As the economy slows down, because oil prices get higher, people consume less and And then that peak actually extends further out because we can't afford to make the peak happen quickly because it's so expensive so yes the the transition town movement is how can we make our towns and our communities more resilient can we how can we develop local skills? how can we develop a local economy? how can we build an infrastructure that will still work even when oil is not so readily available or affordable as it is now. And that whole concept of resilience in the transition town movement is just as applicable to all of these other things in the perfect storm that is are going to be disrupting our our big machine of the global economy to one degree or another in the coming years or decades. And it could be a, a gradual descent as ecological and issues get bigger, as storms get more severe, as oil gets more and more expensive and harder to get. And, you know, and as, as all of these factors combine to make the global economy run poorly and more countries fail, you know, there were like no failed states when we were 30 years ago, and now there's... Mm-hmm. several failed countries in the world with it, you know, like Yemen and, and uh,
0: you know, different few yeah. countries in Africa. Greece on the, the ba- on the border, Spain right. was, even Ireland. Right. I mean, here, here you uh, know, the civilized Argentina, countries, so to you know, speak. Argentina, yeah, I mean, a bunch right? of
1: countries, yeah, that are not third world countries, Argentina, Spain, Greece, you know, those countries right. have been on the skids, and... Frankly, you know, if we had a huge event in the United States, we could be on the ropes too, though it's hard to imagine us being on the ropes like Greece is. It it could happen to us, especially if some terrorist decided they sure wanted to put it to us and do an EMP and and it fried all mm-hmm. the electronics up and down the East Coast, New York City, Boston Stock Exchange gone, Washington D.C. gone, you know, the entire East oh, yeah. Coast. I mean, all of a sudden boom like that, the American economy would grind to a halt. It can heart.
0: be done.
1: It can, it can be, be done. It can be done. Right. No one and is so
0: no one is a pan, invulnerable.
1: A pandemic could do it quite quickly. So so we have a whole slew of things that could do it slowly, like the long, slow emergency, sort of a cascading downward effect that you can predict and you can see and you can watch it happening and you can kind of make changes. Or it could be something instant, you know, relatively quick and instant, like a pandemic, like a. Uh, you know, like a terrorist act, like a solar storm, and then just boom, like that, you know, in a week, we're on our knees. And and so the concept of building resilience into your local town is a valuable thing to do, and it can be done now while the world's still working well, much more easily than trying to put put together some pieces and make it work to After the best of your ability facts. if things have already Correct. like hit the fan. It's you the
0: same it. idea, Matt, of preventative medicine, (laughs) or, you know, wherever you look, the idea of planning ahead for exigencies is just something that is not built into our system of thinking, except for I would say the smarter people among us, like yourself, who have been involved in planning and preparation for decades. And, uh, you know, this is why we want to you know, pick your brain here for the solutions for our thinking and therefore our actions. So, the transition town model is one that inculcates the notion of both prevention and proper pre- preparation for a time when we will be living with, if not no oil, at least little oil. And how do we change our minds relative to the notion of consumerism and an economy that has to grow as opposed to, let's just say, an even-keel zero-point economy? That's a whole other conversation. But when it comes to bricks and mortar, so to speak, what do you see that people can do in community, small communities, let's say, on local levels, both rural and urban, to be prepared for these kinds of potential types of uh, occurrences? Well, rural, you
1: know, if you happen to be in an area that, that grows it's and produces a big question, more I know food, yeah. it is a big question, you know, then then yeah. you're, you're way ahead of the game in that, you know, if you're in an area that produces more food than it consumes, then in a long-term, you know, kind of grid-down scenario, your chances of hanging in there decently is, is pretty pretty decent. If you're in an area, a big metro area, then, you know, unfortunately, in a long-term situation, it's, you're going to need to get yourself to an area where they do produce more than they consume because things won't, you know, there will be an awful lot of people for a little bit of stuff that's trickling
0: into the big cities. It's just That's just the way it's going to be. Thankfully, let me just bring to bear the fascinating um, upsurge of what's called urban farming. And we have right here in Brooklyn, the largest rooftop farm, literally a farm, um, in the world right here in Brooklyn. And there is a mass movement. In fact, I interviewed the uh, filmmaker of a film uh, called Growing Cities, very cleverly titled, about um agriculture taking place in all the major cities across the country. He's from in Omaha. vertical garden in some, yeah, and vertical gardens in places Vertical like, gardens exactly. Um uh, yeah. From you know, some culture. of the
1: islands yeah yeah vertical gardens in major cities is happening all around the world and yeah. especially you know warmer climates it's happening quite a bit. So there is the potential to build in more much more resilience than is currently there in local in local areas, even in metro areas. And, and you know, there's the concept of lifeboats, of if you have the financial wherewithal to you know partner with other people. Now, maybe you're someone who has skills and talents that doesn't have much money, so in the lifeboats you partner with somebody who has the money to provide some of the what skills. What is a lifeboat?
0: What are you referring
1: well, to? Well, the concept of a lifeboat is a collective group of people who perhaps, you know, purchase a small farm somewhere and that people live and work on the farm and people live and work in the cities and other places, and it's sort of a a pooling together of resources. So um, people who have maybe the skills and talents and not the money end up, you know, working and the desire, you know, work on the farm, whereas people who have the You know the money and the finances and and their work involves being, them being in the city they have the city so so you're you're sort of you're pulling together and you know somebody has the money and somebody has the talents and somebody has the energy and maybe there's elderly people who you know have some of not some of others and so by partnering together, then you have a a lifeboat uh-huh. that's developed that has yes. some resilience built into it and and provides you with a place. To go rather than counting on the U.S. government being your lifeboat and counting on the National Guard being the lifeboat, and you saw a small example of how that didn't work very well in Hurricane Katrina. But eventually, things came together and pulled together, and and you know, people at least didn't starve, not you know, or die. Too many of them in Katrina. But a lot of people lost their homes permanently and were never resettled and, and, you know, floated around the country and it disrupted lives. But we're looking at long-term events that will make Katrina pale in comparison. You know, the the, the scale of yes. them will be massive compared to Katrina. And we saw how Katrina pretty much stretched the limits of the government to its max. And imagine 50 Katrinas happening at once. And and you can you can see right there of, oh, Fifty Katrina's at once! Wow, um, any lifeboats—it's hard, hard to imagine.
0: Correct, community communal
1: lifeboats. Not y- y- the big—the big government simply won't will be overwhelmed and not be able to provide lifeboats. So it's interesting when
0: you look at when you look at this phenomenon historically, uh, going back just a few hundred years to the founding of this country. One of the motivations of people to come to the United States was this notion of religious freedom. And utopian societies, utopian communities were set up all over, you know, New England and elsewhere where people could practice their faith, their spirituality, their religion, their sense of self-expression, whatever that looked like. But the point is, Oneonta has won in upstate New York. And uh Then, a little later, in the 1960s, we had these things called communes, and uh, interesting, the word commune is the basis of the word communism. I don't like isms of any sort, frankly, but nonetheless, it is interesting, And, um, and you also always had the idea of commons, the public good, the public commons, which has been with us for many, many hundreds of years, if not longer. So what it looks like is, as things do work in cycles, we're coming back to this point kind of conversation where people do have to pull together, not rely on externals like governments, and rely on themselves as, as essentially tribesmen in the higher sense, kindred spirits. Part of a clan, a family, an extended family, and working side by side together to help each other be sustainable isn't that so yeah we're looking that's correct i mean in so we're in going from disaster where began situation that way we moved into the rugged individual archetype of the uh the hard pioneering American, that really you could I, I, I would argue that failed miserably because it's not a sustainable model at all, as is the so-called hardcore expression of this thing that we misnomered capitalism, but not right. to go down that road but that whole model of the rugged individual autonomous sovereign being doesn't work and we are social beings by definition of our animal nature and our higher nature, and we are being called back to be that way, our higher nature, which is social and cooperative to coordinate our actions, whereas you were saying before, some people have one set of skills, other people have another, and when we pool together in this lifeboat imagery or transition town imagery to a renewable, resourced, renewably based world and community with local growing, everything changes for the good. Yeah, I I think a, f- a friend of mine said basically,
1: in order to have all the skills you really need to make it in the long haul, he says it takes a real village, you know, a couple thousand people. Um, yes and and typically there's this there's this aura of mystique of you know the lone wolf the guy with all the night vision goggles and and all the guns and yeah. that he can he can hold off the starving hordes by himself and and make it through Armageddon when everybody else goes down but realistically no one can stay awake 24/7 and you know the lone wolf is going to get picked off by people who are meaner and tougher and have more f- bad friends that are going to team up and take all of his toys away. And it, yeah. the safety is going to be in numbers and the safety is going to be in community. And think about the medieval times when there was walled castles and you know you, you went into a walled city at night and you had safety within the confines of your community and, and it was in communities that you were able to hold off the marauders and hold off the the, uh, the bandits and by yourself you just couldn't do that and unfortunately so important you know, things degenerate so important it, you to know, point. you're looking at that it's that community that's going to make the difference make or break you is do you have exactly. a exactly a resilient community that
0: you can be a part of and exactly if you don't I'd like then you take need this, to find one I'd like to take this to another uh place Matt which is the actual, as I mentioned before, bricks and mortar rather figuratively, but quite literally now. What kinds of structures have you been building that are earthquake resilient, that are storm resilient, that are climate change resilient? What kind of materials are you favoring? What kind of what what kind of shapes of structures? I mean, of course we've got those wonderful um earth houses structures by someone like Mike Reynolds in the Taos area. You know, we've got the um uh the Earth, yeah, the earth spaceships. Earth yeah. ships, right, thank you. And we've got any number of different really Buckminster Fullerian style of uh, architecture that's taking place. Uh what do you see as the proper geometry and design and with what materials of a living habitat well there's there's several there's no
1: one right answer but for instance i know um, somebody who does geodesic domes out of out of um, ashland oregon And their domes, they have extremely strong domes that can handle high snow loads, hurricane winds without collapsing. And and they have a new 3-D printer that they're developing right now that can go and on-site print a concrete composite-based dome on-site for for really low dollars. So that's one thing. Mm. Uh, I've built structures with bamboo technologies in Hawaii that are that have gone through Category Five hurricanes. That are and the bamboo is very low carbon oh, footprint so and right. It's, they they grow it in, in it's Vietnam. It's so resilient. Build their, yeah. you know build it to American designs and ship it here and and you put together panels and now the bam and it's fairly fire and mold resistant. It's extremely flexible, extremely tough and durable in hurricanes and earthquakes. Um, so that's a and it, and it's beautiful. I mean because it's it's mm-hmm. built with I love you know, it it it's incredibly beautiful stuff. I mean if you yeah. if you like that look, I've also built with structural insulated concrete panels which is basically from an engineer's point of view I just love it because it's got a foam core with uh wire mesh, um heavy pencil rod steel mesh on the inside and outside connected with with Z-trussing wires poked through the foam and that is extremely high strength to weight ratio. It's got thin skins of concrete in the inside and outside, so it's very energy efficient, very materials efficient from a green point of view. It uses half mm-hmm. the concrete and steel of an ICF, and it's much more energy over, over what? efficient. Of a what? ICF is insulated concrete form where they have like kind of foam blocks and they put the concrete and steel down the center. But but okay. the ICFs, I mean, they're easier to use. They don't require any special training and skills like the conc- concrete insulated panels. But but they, they're like an inverted I-beam. You know, an I-beam has, uh, you, you look at a steel I-beam, it's got all of the meat on the top and bottom and with a very thin web in between. And that's because as an engineer, the strength and stiffness goes up with the cube of the height. And so you you get very little structural bang for your buck out of anything that's in the middle, and it's on the outside, the skins, you know, the top and bottom where all your, your bang for your buck is. So when you make yes. an insulated, if you make an uh, insulated concrete form where all your steel and concrete's in the center, then you're getting the least structural bang for your buck because, it, you know, the center is where you get the least out of it, and, this, and the outside yes. surface is yes. where you get the most. Plus you get all that great, thermal mass insulated right in the middle and isolated from your building so it doesn't do anything to stabilize the the heat and to absorb the heat from the day and then release it at night so i, yeah. I like the uh the, the structural thing but then there's other ones like uh, straw bale is a really resilient form that has good earthquake resistance and good fire resistance and you know certainly it's Carbon footprint is very low, and uh, mm-hmm. it's pretty, pretty labor intensive. So if you've got a lot of sweat equity to put into it, it's a good way to go. And uh, you know, so straw bale. I mean, I wouldn't want straw bale in a pr- place prone to flooding, because you know, if you got a flood that comes up around the bale, it's going to soak through the walls and soak sure.
0: the, the bale up, and you can have a mold issues. Sure. So in a more flooding – how about humidity? How does humidity affect? a straw bale um, structure.
1: Straw bale is generally if you use rice straw, it's a high silica and it's and it's very fire and mold resistant. Uh you know, so you might have to import rice straw instead of using local straw. Like, you know, in California there's plenty of rice straw, but in most parts of the country it's not so. Um uh, yeah. so you have to generally if you waterproof really well and, and prevent water penetration and you're not in a flood zone, then the humidity shouldn't be a problem. But, um, you know, you have to watch all of that and make sure that they don't have moisture penetration or water penetration, that you don't have flooding. Uh, so certainly if I was in a flood zone, I would I would never build with straw bale. But, you know, mm-hmm. outside of a flood zone, just make sure that it's waterproofed really well and, and you don't have any water penetration and, and,
0: you know, your eaves are properly designed, all of that good stuff. Is bamboo your favorite i'm am I gathering that or is it really well, uh geographic say, um and condition specific yes
1: it's geographic and condition specific I would say building in the in a warm climate i i really like the bamboo if i'm building in a hurricane pro climate I would go for the structural insulated concrete panels the skips s c i b structural concrete insulated panel like three d panel um, if I was, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes you do a hybrid, like you might go for the massive walls of, of straw bale. I think, I think straw bale is wonderful if you have the time and, and you're in an area that doesn't have a drawback, like a flood area to straw bale. I right. think it's a really good way to go. So a lot kind of mm-hmm. depends on your skill sets around you and, you know, who you've got to draw on. Um Yes. The, the structural insulated concrete panels and the straw bale require a, someone that's good at finishing like stucco and a lot of mm-hmm. the Hispanic people are you know who who've grown up in the trades in Hispanic societies have some really good stucco people for reasonable dollars. It was really mm-hmm. hard in Hawaii to find you mm-hmm. know someone that didn't cost me an arm and a leg to to finish stuff like that, but in you know in mm-hmm. California it's much easier or certainly in most of the southern states in America, much easier to find people who are really good at finishing stucco
0: for both straw bale or or uh, skip construction. Yes, yes. Oh, that's very helpful. That's very helpful. Are there any particular uh, – d- does your knowledge base extend also into such things as, uh, as um, intensive um, gardening or permaculture or – the use of soil, intelligent use of soil, without the use of uh, artificial fertilizers around the house, such as permaculture well, and the I, like? Well, I
1: definitely, it extends in those areas, though I'm not as much of an expert in those as, say, someone who's certified teacher of permaculture might be. Um, Surely. Certainly, you know, in my book, and the chapter on food, uh, John Jevons, uh, the author of How to Grow More Fruits and Nuts and Vegetables Than You Could Possibly Imagine, uh, who was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize for his bio-intensive gardening and, and teaching methods to the third world that, that required you know, a fraction of the water and no chemical fertilizers and, and produced a tremendous amount of produce in small areas, uh, he, he gratefully allowed me to... Teach to to use his illustrations and teach his process in my book, and mm-hmm. so I would. But I I can't. I don't claim to be an expert at permaculture. You know, it's like I'm I'm more book learning than real learning. I mean, I've had a five acre mini farm, and and yeah, we had uh-huh. an acre garden, and so and I've composted and stuff. But I, I don't claim to be. Like a great expert at permaculture, but I certainly subscribe to permaculture principles and yes. feel that it's a viable, wonderful way to go that it's the wave of the future is designing everything for yes. permaculture and edible gardens and and yes. you know, growing a landscape that's an edible landscape it's yes it's a it's a great ideal to ascribe to and it's the way to the future and it's a sustainable way that hopefully we can find a path to a sustainable path to a future we can all live with
0: yes indeed yes indeed well i'll tell you matthew stein this has been a really rich rich dialogue your your knowledge is wonderful and very helpful uh, i believe to our audience and certainly to myself uh and bringing attention to these subjects, otherwise rather largely ignored, except for let's say the um, the community uh, largely uh, fear-based. What is the name? I'm thankfully I've forgotten of uh, preppers. You know who have you know tin cans of every sort and size. Uh, you know stacked against the walls next to their shotgun. You know this is not a model of preparing for a future that I want to have, and I don't think many do, Uh, but at the same time there is very much an incredibly rational importance to looking around at our world, looking at our geology, looking at our place in the larger sphere of uh, solar system and taking into account our vulnerability that you outline so well with historical examples and a current situation of what it would take to restore the grid if in fact one of these solar storms or a nuclear accident which happens with some regularity were to occur and knock out systems that we have become so reliant upon so this is uh, an education that i feel is so vital to our audience and to uh the world at large, I, I thank you profoundly for the work you Well, you're doing. welcome.
1: And, and just to note in the nuclear thing is that the nuclear industry, uh, according to Arnie Gunderson, the nuclear insider turned uh, whistleblower, calculated that it was a one in a million chance for a nuclear power plant to melt down. Um, and based on that, it was going to be 2,500 years uh, before we had our first meltdown with the number of existing nuclear power plants we have. Well, we've had five meltdowns now. Uh, we've had Chernobyl, and we've had Three Mile Island, and we had two or three at Fukushima. So we've had five in 35 years. So that averages out to one every seven years. So the nuclear industry sold the world on how safe their stuff was, based on a one failure in 2,500 years. But we're actually averaging one failure in every seven years. So I don't think anyone in the world would have bought that if they said, "Oh, well, these things only fail one in every 7 years." And then they also underestimated. They estimated the cost of each failure on the order of 100 million dollars instead of um, 50 or 60 billion dollars, which is what we're looking at. And so um <laughs> so so we're extraordinary. Yeah, so so they they gave, they gave, did quite a sell job based on information that uh, is totally you know off by a factor yeah. of
0: 1000 to 1. So, uh, yeah, you know. basically, it's a you know it was a good Madison Avenue sell job, as you're saying, you know. Well, then uh, they
1: believed it. And they believed it at the time, you know, and they and they they thought that they were did. smart guys and they had it figured out. But unfortunately, history's shown that they didn't have it figured out nearly as well as they thought they did.
0: Yeah, that's right, that's right. And I want to just, you know, keep you on for another moment here, because I I wrote an article for the Huffington Post about the subject I'm about to bring up, which is the whole Iran nuclear question. To me, it's all such a profound, ridiculous situation, um, and it is one thing, and and it appears to be another. And that is, the article was about if we want to really work things out with Iran, what we would do is take the nuclear question off the table altogether simply by, I mean, this is so simple um, either I would be considered a simpleton or a genius and that is, and I'm sure other people have thought this just build them a huge solar and wind farm and geothermal, if it's possible there, or hydropower, and design, like Germany has done successfully, an entire renewable energy-based infrastructure so they could have ample electricity for everything. And then we should learn from that and do it ourselves. So that removes the entire question in an instant, because this can be done. It's been proven to be plenty ample in energy generation for a nation, and there's just no question about it. Um, Mark, Dr. Mark Jacobson at Stanford University, uh, professor of material science, there, uh, I've had on the show a couple of times talking about um, what he calls the the renewable solution and it's, uh, he goes country to country and state to state, and he analyzes their, what it would require in terms of uh, wind turbines, solar energy output, and the like in order to make the conversion and when, if instituted now, could occur. It's called the Solutions Project and he's been on david letterman he's been on a number of uh interesting tv and radio shows including mine uh talking about solutions that have nothing to do with fossil fuel or nuclear so well, I, th- I'm I think just we have the technology this as a real solution excuse me
1: yeah i mean i think we have the technology to radically shift away from fossil fuels and nuclear and and in Germany they've decommissioned the oldest of their nuclear power plants and yes, they, they have. have a plan to phase out the other the rest of them in another 10 years or so and yes. I, the rest of the world could do it and put a lot of people back to work doing it if we shifted our money from right. from mil, you know fighting wars all over the planet and and shipping <laughs> Killing machines all over the planet, then we could do it. Exactly. It, it's been estimated that for one fifth of the world's current uh, expenditures on military, that we could implement uh, Plan B. If Plan A is business as usual. Plan B is the alternative to a sustainable future. That for one fifth of what we spend in the world, uh, then we could we could do it. And, I mean, it wouldn't happen in a year, but we could be on the path to sustainability in, say, like 20 years, and we're just not doing it. And oh, one-fifth yeah. of the world is, oh,
0: yeah. is you know,
1: basically, or one-sixth of the world's military budget, which would be one-third, one-third of the world's military budget and one-sixth of the United States. Wait, wait, I get yes. that mixed up. No, one, We
0: spend more on right. our military one-sixth budget. Of our budget. Then the entire rest of the world combined. Right, right. That's so how so basically it is. Yeah. One for one uh,
1: one third of the world's budget or no, one sixth of the world's budget or one third of our budget in the military. We could do yes. this. And we're not. You know, yeah. we're just it's not a priority and the the people who got on the top of the pyramid by the old way have a big stake in keeping the old way going. Unfortunately the That's old way right. is killing That's the planet. Right. That's right, and so, so my it's proposal, hard because the stakeholders have a stake in keeping the old way going, and the old way is going to take us down. So it's like either right. we rise up and take our power back and say, "Hey, we got to we got to stop this train," or we're all going down, or, or we're going to crash. Li- so it's interesting.
0: My proposal, this proposal specific to Iran, would also eliminate. Not all, because Israel wouldn't stop complaining no matter what, but it would largely resolve their concern r- regarding the potential for nuclear weapons in Iran. It would wipe that whole consideration out, too. What do you think about that proposal of of better that we would uh, provide either the technology or a grant money or a loan to help support Iran going renewable? And then just completely render uh, obsolete the whole discussion about nuclear. Well, I I think Iran
1: wants a bomb to prevent being bullied from Israel. And I think that they are willing to push that to the side for security agreements and to get the sanctions taken away. And I don't really think it... I think it'd be great if we also helped them with renewable technologies and... And you know, we've seen in Vietnam that that uh, treating them as an enemy didn't work very well, but treating them as a friend has right. has worked terrific. And exactly I
0: that, exactly. And, and
1: and Iran was our friend until yeah. the CIA teamed up with um, England's equivalent of the CIA and overthrew the is it I think that's how you pronounce his name. His government in the 1950s. This was a very highly educated liberal man who was educated in the West yes, and indeed. Iran's democratically had, elected had women. It was democratically elected, and they had uh, they were a model of uh, an educated society with women having good rights and in Islamic fundamentalism being you know pretty non-existent, not powerful. And it wasn't until we got rid of. Their democratically elected leader, who wanted to nationalize the oil companies, and his deal for nationalizing the oil companies, surprisingly, he was asking for less money back than the deal that the Saudi Arabians arranged when they got Aramco and they nationalized oil companies and basically made an uh, an Arab, a Saudi oil company, to run things with Western help. And what's interesting is, Mogadishu was asking for basically the same deal, a slightly worse deal than the Saudis got. And we we took him out, and he died in prison, whereas the Saudis are Bush's best buddies and friends. And the Saudis are Islamic fundamentalists, and Mogadish was a Western-educated Democrat. liberal thinker, yes. democratic. Exactly. And so it, it just kind of mind-blowing. Yep. And then the person we put in there was the Shah of Iran, and he was so horrible exactly. that people were will- basically said were willing to take anyone but the Shah, and they were willing to give their power over to the fundamentalist Islamic regime of of the Ayatollah. Because they felt that was better than than the Shah, who was so despotic and so terrible, and so here we yes, exactly. shot ourselves in the foot by getting rid of a, a, a nice liberal democratic leader and replacing him with the Shah, who was then this, the people chose the Ayatollah over the Shah because he was the lesser of two evils, and then exactly. we basically started the basis for ISIS and and
0: you know right. all of the horrible really things we're seeing more now. There. And then it was really continued with our invasion in Iraq. The whole other conversation, and uh, a sad one at that, because it shows how United States aggression across the world for its own self-interest has really destroyed the fabric of democratic society around the world. Correct. And we've we've supported governments around the world. It's purpose, uh, or its alleged purpose, Of bringing democracy and supporting democracy on the world
1: around the world, we supported multinational corporations rather than ideals all around the world. There you go. And unfortunately, the multinational corporations have stomped on people and freedoms, and 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 countries have made decisions. And you know, a a lot of radical, uh, you know, fascist type and and fundamentalist types have sprung up to fight us because they. And so um, betrayed by America's two-faced things, where we we say we support ideals and yet we, you know, we 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 kill the yende in Chile. We and, act otherwise, exactly. Yeah, we yeah, we, we, we supported horrible otherwise. death squads, all you know, fascist-type people all around the world, and then we wonder why
0: people don't like us. You know, it's like. Right, uh, exactly. Come on. It's not so wondrous, you know, it really is. Well, Matt Stein, I want to just thank you again for your good work and for coming on and uh, talking with us today and uh, covering all of these truly important subjects that are very empowering when people really get the full tilt of it. And uh, I really appreciate all that you're doing and contributing. So You're welcome, and
1: dirty. thanks so much for having me on. And, you know, people can get some really great free information at my website, com. Just click on the articles you want, grab-and-go kits, uh, emergent, you know, alternative medicine bag of tricks to have just in case. Yeah, All so kinds of really, wonderful. really great articles. So, uh, you know, please wonderful. go there and, and check me it have out. have
0: that website. We have your okay. website on our website as well, as well as the link to this show that you can all share with others so uh, more and more people have access to this information. So, good. Matthew Stein, thanks again for joining me, and uh, we'll have you on again some other time. You're welcome, and uh, look forward to the next time. Good night. Sounds great. Good night now. Matthew Stein, MIT-trained engineer, uh author, popular speaker. He's been on all major media across the United States. He doesn't usually get an hour and a half to share his deep knowledge, but indeed, it's a lot of knowledge and it does take time to flesh it out, as you saw and heard, because uh, we really need to get this wake-up call. He is part of this entire movement that obviously A Better World is part of. Progressive Radio Network is part of. MNN is largely part of. Blog Talk Radio is largely part of of waking people up, giving everyone a greater education about things that we just haven't known about. Well, some of us have kind of known a lot of things for a long time. That's true. Uh, but uh, you know have been in the business, if you will, of really taking it seriously, of bringing what we know to the forefront so more people can act with heart and with intelligence. And it's really embracing where we're coming from. I mean, I really want people to know that we're not making bad guys and enemies out of anyone. The only enemy really is ignorance and foolishness those two I should say, when people are not listening to the bidding of their heart, they're not listening to rational thinking and you all know that as a therapist and coach and counselor I ultimately come back down to this condition it looks like it's out there and a lot of people doing a lot of bad things, but I say that's really a bit naive what it is is lack of proper parenting, lack of proper in utero conditioning, creating the proper lo- environment for the fetus, even for the embryo. And when we go back to these levels, we start to understand the formation of character or the lack thereof. We start to understand what is forming an individual and shaping his or her consciousness, that will flower into a beautiful rose later on, or one that's wilting, or just seeking to acquire everything at anyone else's expense. Their heart has become dormant, and uh, we need to reactivate it, and that can be done through proper education, through humor, through community, through singing, I mean it. Um, all of these are ways of activating the heart back, hearts that are usually wounded early, early on and don't want to open up to life's, human life's, higher possibilities and shut down, and then people start to act in their lower nature. And that's what we have as a world today we have justification for it, we have rationalization for it, and it's uh, a serious, serious problem that we are currently facing. And we've jeopardized our habitat. Um, As Matthew Stein said, we have soiled our own habitat, our own home, our own pants, actually. And it's really so problematic. So shows like this are deeply committed to awakening people's awareness, increasing their education in both somewhat ideological, philosophical, as well as very practical ways to help us move forward in community and uh, grow our own and take our own power back, take our country back through local building. So on that note, I want to just thank you all for joining me and Matthew Stein today on A Better World. I want to remind you all that uh, A Better World has just become a nonprofit organization, a 501c3. So any donations that you make to us of any size are tax-deductible, and we can arrange that on our website at abetterworld.tv betterworld.tv where it says, donate now. However, and then in such a case, please use the mechanism so that uh, whatever it is you donate comes through us, to us in full. Or if it's a more sizable donation, um, let's say beyond uh, you know a few hundred dollars, that it be conducted in another way, simply by check or direct deposit, different than using PayPal, which is uh, gets a bit costly if not done correctly. So on that note, I just invite you all to be part of a better world. I know you are all ready. Many of you receive our newsletter, and you're all part of a better world in your own worlds as well. So I know that. We are building a global one here yet full of locals And uh, I love your participation, and I'm grateful for it. On that note, again, thank you so much. Also, last thing, every other Thursday evening, we have a Heaven on Earth seminar in downtown New York City, which I teach, where we do Qigong, stress management techniques, uh, mindfulness meditation, and applications of neuroscience and consciousness exercises, including therapeutic theater, which builds empathy and communication skills that we just direly need because most conflict, most stress, most distress comes from our not managing our relationships well with others and even with ourselves. All of these we address, as well as leadership training because people who engage in these sorts of uh, levels of inner work indeed become leaders in their own respective community, and that's what we need. Ah, I said last, but I was mistaken. I'm so sorry. There is another last comment, and that has to do with a wonderful event that is taking place at John Jay School of Criminal Justice and my colleague and associate Lindsay Kamen is uh, orchestrating this and it's based on the film called Can't Stop the Water. It's going to be a screening and a panel discussion at John Jay College which I will be moderating that panel and it's on April 22nd. It's a free event you're all welcome and if you're in the general New York area Please come at 7 p.m. April 22nd. Can't Stop the Water is about the water issues from Katrina uh, that continue on in an indigenous, indigenous community in the New Orleans area. And these people, their houses are being filled with water. It's just an indomitable, impossible situation. And they are getting so little help. This film addresses that, and this is what we're doing for Earth Day. So please join us. I will have information on a betterworld.tv about it, or you can go to Eventbrite and sign up, or contact me at mjr at a betterworld.net. Mjr at a betterworld.net for information. I'll send you the link. All right. That's all for this evening. Thanks again for joining, and I look forward to seeing you all next week.